Uh, you can turn to Revelation chapter 2. Revelation, yeah. Revelation chapter 2. second here. All right, let's uh let's pray and then we'll get into this passage here in Revelation 2. Um, let's pray. God, thank you uh, that you have remembered our names. Thank you that you have not forsaken us. You haven't abandoned us. Uh, you haven't given up on us. Even in the midst of our sin, uh, you still loved us with an everlasting love, and you still pursued us despite our sin. God, thank you for the gospel. Thank you for loving us when we did not deserve it. And so, Lord, I even ask, too, that, that that love would be really the fuel behind everything we do. That it would be our motive and our drive behind our lives as we live to uh, seek you and please you and be more like you. And Lord, I ask even too that this morning, right now in this small little church, and you're a big God, sovereign over everything, omniscient in all things, God, that you would choose to be here this morning and speak through your word by the power of your spirit. Please, God, do this this morning. Uh, we want to hear from you, and we want to love you more. So, uh, could you do that this morning? Uh, we ask these things in your son's name, Jesus. Amen. Okay, so, Revelation chapter 2. It's, um, it's interesting. I've been thinking a lot about, um, uh, about church and about um, the way we do church. And I get a lot of questions, too, from people um, asking me, uh, how is Brantford Bible Chapel? How is church? Uh, some other Christian friends not from here, and uh, it's strange. Like we hit, we all have our own opinions. So I'll give uh, my opinion when someone asks me, and and it, it happens often and often and often. And I keep thinking, man, I have all these opinions, um, all these thoughts, and yet I've just been um, really struck with the thought of that doesn't matter as much as God's opinion does. And so we, we asked the questions, hey, um, what did you think of church this Sunday? Uh, what did you think of the message? How did you think it went? And I've just been thinking more, like, no, that doesn't really matter that much. It's, no, what, what did God think? Like, what did God think of the way Sunday morning went? What did God think of the message? What did God think of the way we did midweek Bible study? What did God think of the way we run youth group? What does God think of the way we teach our children in Sunday school? What does God think? think, right? Because that's what really matters at the end of the day. Who cares what man's opinion is apart from God's word and what he says? So what does God think 
of this church. And here it's a it's an interesting passage because in Revelation 2, we actually get Jesus' viewpoint of a church. That's interesting because in the Gospels, you don't get that really. You get Jesus talking about uh, the coming of the church and what it's going to look like, what it should look like, um, how he desires his bride to be, and, and so on and so forth. But here we actually get Jesus' viewpoint of a church in the present existing. And he has some things about this church. This is the church of Ephesus. And we're going to look at uh, Revelation 2, verses 1 through 7. And Jesus gives us the viewpoint. And in this church, there's a lot of things he likes here. And we're going to look at those. And then there's a th- one thing, <laughs> a thing that um, isn't so good. But uh, to start off, we'll, we'll read through the passage and then we'll just kind of break it down. But I want to ask two questions when we read this passage. Is The first question is, what does Jesus think and desire the church to be like? Okay, what does Jesus want the church to look like? What does he think it should look like? And then two, what kind of church will we be? So that's the question just to uh, examine uh, our own individual hearts as a body together. Uh, is what does Jesus, Jesus think the church should look like? And what, will the, what kind of church will we, Brantford Bible Chapel, be? So Revelation chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. Let's read them. It says, To the angel of the church in Ephesus, I write the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven lamps, golden lampstands. I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my namesake, and you have not grown weary, but I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from from its place, unless you repent. Yet this you have. You hate the work of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. And so, um, verse 1 really is, uh, this is Jesus talking. Most of your Bibles have red letters. It's Jesus. This is just apocalyptic language uh, of basically saying, Jesus is saying this. Um, And what he says is, uh, starting in verse 2, he goes through a list of different things that he says that he likes. And so he says, I know your works. I know your toil. I know your patient endurance. And so Jesus is looking at the church of Ephesus and saying, Hey, Ephesus, you work hard. You toil. You endure patiently. Even in verse 3, he says it again, just backwards. I know you're enduring patiently. In verse 2, he says, your patient endurance. So he just flips them. Same thing. He reiterates it twice. He says, I like that. Like, this is good. You're working hard. You're toiling. You're enduring patiently for my namesake. I like that about you, Ephesus. He says, I like what you're doing. And then in verse uh, to the first part, he even says, uh, uh, I know your works and how you cannot bear with those who are evil. And again, in, uh, in verse 2, 
the second part. You, you bear with those who are evil, but you have tested. You cannot bear with those who are evil, but you have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and you found them to be false. And so there's false teachers coming into Ephesus and preaching the gospel contrary to the cross of Christ. And the Ephesian leaders and church members are saying, no, we're not having this. You need to leave. You can't preach that here. And Jesus commends this. He says, this is good. I like this, Ephesus. You have false teachers coming in among you, and you don't, you don't allow the evil to come in. You don't let sheep, sheep and wolf clothing come in and steal your sheep and kill them. You deny them. You get them out of here. And so that's good. Jesus is saying, I like that. And then even uh, in verse, where is it? Uh, verse 6, he uh, later says this. He says, yet this you, this you have. You hate the work of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. So here what is happening is there's in Ephesus, um, you have the Nicolaitans. And in Ephesus, there was uh, one of the biggest temples and one of the biggest uh, goddesses that people would worship called the goddess of Artemis, or some would call her Diana. And she was a goddess that almost all of people in the surrounding area of Ephesus would come and worship. And so you have tons, thousands, and thousands of Ephesian people coming in to worship this goddess, and when they would worship him, it was through sexual rituals. So it, it's kind of nasty and perverted here. And you would have thousands of priests and priestesses who would come in, and they would have cultic prostitution going on. And so this is the type of culture that they're living in. They're living amongst all these people, worshiping the goddess of Artemis through sexual rituals and cultic prostitution. And they would, some would dabble in it, and some were committed to it, but they would do it for their own sexual pleasure. And so they live in this type of culture. And Jesus is saying, you don't allow that to happen amongst your church. I like that, Ephesus. You're not conforming to this world. You're not allowing the culture to influence the way you live, the way you do church, the way you act. Because think about it, too. There could be some Christians in Ephesus who are like, oh, you know what, maybe that's not so bad. Like, I mean, everyone's doing it. And the Ephesian elders and people have to say, no, you can't, you can't go that way. Like, that's not what the gospel is. We know it's not for sexual desire. It's not for these things. And so Jesus is commending his church here for, for um, avoiding cultural influence, for denying false doctrine, and for working hard and enduring patiently for his namesake. And listen, if we want to be a kind of church, this is the type of church we want to be. Like we don't want to give in to, to this kind of cultural influence because we live in a very, very sexually influenced culture between magazines and movies and the list goes on and on and on from billboards to commercials. We live in a sexually influenced culture that is constantly bombarding our minds. And Jesus wants us to be this type of church that Ephesus is, that will not conform to this world. They won't give in to the, to the cultural influences. And Jesus, look at in uh, verse, verse 3, the second part. He says, you're bearing up for my namesake, and you have not grown weary. 
So they're doing this with the type of zeal that's good, that Jesus desires and wants. They're not crusty in their faith. They're doing it with zeal. You've not grown weary. And so now Jesus is saying, you're doing this, and I love that you're doing this, and you should keep doing this in your not conforming to the world, in your enduring patiently, and in your Bible knowledge, and in your doctrine, and in your orthodoxy. This is good. This is the kind of church we want to be. One who's strong in orthodoxy and knows our Bibles well. Like, and that's, honestly, that's one of my favorite things about this church is our value and love for God's Word. Like, that's a good thing. And I would just, I'm going to do this again later, but I would encourage you, study so hard. Think and ponder over Jesus' words daily. Think hard about the truths of Scriptures. Let them into your mind and let them inform your mind to inspire your heart. This is a good thing. Jesus commends this. And they've not grown weary in it. And so that's, that's what's happening here in Ephesus. But if we, even if we zoom out and get the big picture of Ephesus as a church, like this church is a powerhouse. Started by, helped start by Aquila and Priscilla, discipled for almost three years by Paul, and then eldered and pastored by Apollos, Timothy, and John. Right? That's, that's a pretty strong church staff. But not only that, like these guys, like think about this, right? If we had an elder in our church who's like writing the Bible, like that's insane. John is writing the Bible and he's the elder of the church. James, you were in the... Didn't think so. No. That's all right. That's all right. That's all right. That's the reality. This church is a powerhouse. They know doctrine. They know orthodoxy. They won't conform to this world. They endure patiently for Jesus' name's sake. And that's a great thing. And Jesus loves that. And oh, what a church we would be to continue in these things. Paul, Aquila, Priscilla, Apollos, Timothy, John are no third-string tight ends. People who are strong in doctrine endure patiently for Christ's name. So this is the type of church we want to be. But there's, there's one more thing here, and that's in verse 4. See, in the midst of all this good we see here, there's a warning and a word of threat from Jesus. Right? This isn't just a man saying, this is Jesus himself. So let's read verses 4 and 5 together. He says, but I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. Repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. So Jesus here loves this church and is warning them about their lovelessness towards Him. And so you can have, like this is, Jesus saying, I love your doctrinal purity. I love that you're bearing up my namesake and, and doing it patiently. I love your zeal. But you don't really love me. You actually love yourself. And if you don't repent from this, I'm going to remove, remove my presence from you. And so there can be, according to Jesus, 
according to Jesus, a church who is strong in doctrinal education and knowledge, who bears up for his namesake, and at the same time is empty of the presence and power of Jesus. It's in the text. And that's, that's a big deal. Because like, we, we value this. We value this really highly. We love this book. But yet, if we, we don't love God in the midst of loving this book, then we're missing the point. So Jesus is warning the church here. And so I just want to put ourselves in, in just in the, in the shoes of the church of Ephesus here, just so we can examine our own hearts individually and as a church, is to warn us of lovelessness. And so, what is, what is love? Uh, the culture has a lot of ways of defining love, correct? A lot of different ways of defining love, but um, love, according to the Bible, is this. Love is a pure and honest, selfless desire of considering others more significant than yourself. This is John fifteen thirteen, where Jesus talks about greater love has no one than this, that, that someone lay down his life for his friends. Greatest love ever. That someone would lay down, selflessly lay down his life for his friends. It's the pure, honest, selfless desire of considering others more significant than yourselves. And this desire is expressed in action that is birthed in the actions of Jesus showing us what true love is. And then empowering us by the Spirit to act in this love towards Him and one another. So, so love is this. Love is... I see, I know that I am under the wrath of God, destined to damnation. And Jesus stepped in and hung on the cross for my sin. That's love. That is love. He considered us more significant than himself. He considered the Father more significant than his own will. Not my will be done, Lord, but yours be done. And because now that He has chosen us and we get to embrace this love, this love changes the way we live. Because, here's the thing, before I came to know Christ, I was dead wrong in my beliefs. Dead wrong. And Jesus lovingly and graciously pulled me along, loved me, and showed me what true love is, and that I was wrong, and that I, this is what's right. Jesus did that. And so, for us, we, we can't be loveless in our doctrine. We can't be loveless in our enduring patiently. And so, how did this happen? Let's look at in the text, right? How did this happen? In verse 4, it says, But I have this against you. You have abandoned the love you had at first. So, it's they had this love. And maybe it's not so much that they totally lost it now, but it's just become weak and insignificant. Kind of crippled. And, and he's saying, you abandoned it. So, you see, like, this church, in light of their culture and where they are, 
Maybe there were people coming into the church and they were preaching false gospels, which was happening because that's what it says, and they were kicking them out. And more people just kept doing this and kept rising amongst them. And so the people of the church had to say, hey, you know what? No, 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 you need to get out of here. We can't have that. And so the more this happened, the more cold they began to grow against these beliefs and towards a, we have to be right, we can't be wrong. We have to do this right, we can't be wrong. And yet, in that wanting to be right, they're neglecting the love that they had for people. This is, this is what seems to be happening here. They forgot about being gracious to those who are wrong. They forgot about being kind to people who disagree with their beliefs. They forgot loving people who view the church a little bit differently than us. They forgot about that. They abandoned it. And they got so concerned about just being right, doing everything right, making sure we have it done right. And yet they're loveless. They have knowledge and orthodoxy, but they handle it all completely wrong. They were loveless. And so I want to even too just uh, touch on this is that uh, knowledge and love, so knowing what's right and having love are not two separate things. Like when, so when we say, hey, love Jesus Christ, fall deeply in love with Jesus, what we're not saying is we're not saying, hey, hey, listen, just, you know what, forget about like what's actually in this book and just, you know, just become dumb and in love with Jesus. Just turn off your mind and just go to La La Land and think about all good, positive things and forget about this book. Just love. That's not what we're saying. This is not a either or. This is a both and. So what I'm saying is this is a think hard, study deeply, ponder this book, read Spend time. And in your spending time with God, consider the one who was hung on a cross for your sins and fall madly in love with Him based upon the truth that we have. Based upon the truth that He accomplished for us on the cross. That's what it means to love. So this is not a shutting off of the mind. This is a turning on of the mind. It's use your mind more. Don't be lazy in your thinking. Turn on your mind and love God deeply. Inform your mind to inspire your heart. So even too, based upon this passage, is that Jesus is more concerned with our motives than he actually is with our works. He's more concerned with our motives than he actually is with us. He's more concerned about our hearts and our desires than he is about our actions. That's crazy. But that's, what, but that's what he cares about. Even in the New Testament, when he's looking for a man to pick, David, God does not look at the outward appearance of the man. God looks at the heart. And so God's more concerned with your motives and your heart than he is about just your individual actions. 
And so even too, I think, like, how, like how many of you know that reading your Bible, okay, reading your Bible can actually be damaging to your soul? Yeah, all right, that's, that's not voodoo, that's true. Reading your Bible can actually be damaging to your soul. If you don't believe me, just look at the Pharisees. Knew their Bibles inside out, yet did not love Jesus at all. Hated Him until they hung Him on a cross. You see that? You can have knowledge of the Bible and about God and still be lacking so much. Uh, even in, uh, so like, the idea is that this is not some sort of magic book, okay? Um, one time, there's a, a guy, a Christian I know, he, uh, he was so funny, he was explaining to us, he goes, yeah, when I first got saved, he goes, I thought I could just take this book and I'd just like slip it under my pillow when I go to bed at night and sleep on it and I'd wake up and all would be in my head. I was just like, oh yeah, because it's just a positive, good book that influences me really well. It's like, we, like that's funny, right? We laugh at that because it's ridiculous, but sometimes that's what we actually think is that, oh, maybe I'll just, you know, I'll wake up and I'll just read a verse and, and that'll be my devotion. I'll get through the day. And we don't actually think about it. We don't actually ponder what's happening. We don't actually see the God, the glorious, valuable, magnificent God who we're reading about. We just kind of, we've got to get through it quick. We've got to move on and go. And so we don't actually take time to delight in the God of the Bible and we just read and get some head knowledge. And we, we know some facts that, uh, that Abraham was the father of all the sons and, and all the families of Israel will be blessed through him. And we know that. Got it down. Check mark. Done. You see how there's, there's no delight and there's no, there's no inspiring the heart that's just informing the mind? And so that's a knowledge without love. That's doctrine without true Desire and satisfaction in Christ. And so, I just want to, to warn us of that because I think sometimes we just think, oh yeah, I just gotta, I gotta read and I just gotta get, I gotta get a verse so I can, you know, I can see it and then I'll be good. It'll, it'll make me a more positive person today. And that's not the case. It can damage you. It can make you be puffed up and prideful. First Corinthians 8 says, Actually, that knowledge, this kind of knowledge, puffs up. It'll puff you up. But love edifies. Love edifies. So be careful of Bible reading without affection for Jesus. Be careful of Scripture memory without taking the time to ponder over the value of the one who you're memorizing. Be careful in studying theology without savoring the one who you are studying. If you would go to uh, go to First Corinthians thirteen, because I think in this passage, what Jesus is getting at here is that lovelessness is actually sin. Lovelessness is sin. I don't think that's like a, a normal kind of... Oh yeah, I knew that. But literally, lovelessness, gospel-centered, self-sacrificial lovelessness is sin. Look at, uh, look at what Paul says here in 1 Timothy 13. 
I'm sorry. Thank you. First Corinthians. Yes, that's what I meant. I'm having a hard time finding the place. So first Corinthians 13. Look at what it says here. It says, if I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. Right? You're just annoying. And then look at verse 2. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have and deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Francis Chan uh, commented on this passage and he said, some of you could be brilliant but worthless. Brilliant but worthless. Know so much but have no love and affection for Christ to your brothers and sisters around you. So like, has that ever occurred to you, right? Like, that you could think hard, study, ponder, take time, really, really focus in on the truths of the Bible, have so much knowledge, be a brainiac about this book, and you're worthless. Absolutely worthless. Because think about this, right? In Ephesians, in spite of all the good works they're doing, all the toiling, all the patient endurance, Jesus says, yeah, that's good. But you've abandoned love. You've abandoned, you've missed the point. You lost your first love. This is a major problem with this church. It's not small. Lovelessness is sin. I mean, even think about it, right? Look at verse 5. Go back to Revelation. In verse 5, he shows us a big deal. He says, Remember where you have fallen. You've fallen. Repent. Repent. And do the works you did at first. If you don't, if not, I will come to you. And I will remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. It's not that Jesus is just saying, hey, you know, you're doing all this right, but, you know, there's just this one little thing you're missing. You're just missing, love. just, you know, tweak this. Little. No, repent. Change the way you're living. You're doing it wrong. And all these things that are like, yes, you're doing them, but you're not loving people in the midst of it. You're not loving me. Love is not the motivation and the driver behind these things. And so you're nothing. It's worthless. If you don't repent, I'll remove your lampstand. And so you've, uh, you've heard the term before that uh, the punishment fits the crime. Correct? The punishment fits the crime. Um, and it's true even today, right, in our legal justice systems. Like if you murder someone, you'll be put in prison longer than if you stole a car. Why? Because the offense was greater than uh, the offense was greater than the punishment, right? So, uh, because the offense was greater than the punishment, if the offense is greater, the punishment will be greater. I'm sorry. There we go. That's it. <laughs> Thank you. If the offense is greater, then the punishment will be greater. So, um, uh, flashback. When I was six years old, I was. Um, I did a lot of stupid things. Um, I don't know if like my mind was still developing or what was going on as a kid, but I did some stupid things as a six-year-old. 
And, uh, and so um, there's one time uh, me and my family, we, we went on a vacation. And we were with my mom's side of the family. I can't believe I'm telling this story. So we're with my mom's side of the family. And we go up to Maine, and we were in one of those big vacations houses. And uh, we're there, and it's, we're having a fun time. And, and uh, we're about to leave somewhere to go, like, tour around through Maine and stuff. And, and I go outside before everyone else did, and I'm just hanging out there. And there's this big gravel driveway, and everyone's cars are in it. And my uncle had just bought – some of you know this story. You're already laughing. My uncle had just bought a, a brand-new Chrysler minivan. And um, – so I uh, thought it looked pretty cool, but I thought I could make it maybe a little bit better. So what I did was I took a rock off of the ground and I went to the front silver shiny hood and I carved my name in the front of the hood with a rock. Brand new minivan. And so I thought it was cool, but... But not, other people didn't, right? And so even when I spelt it, right, I was six years old, so I'm like, my D's backwards, my N's are backwards and upside down. It's, it says like Danny and big, right across the front of the hood. And so um, I thought it was cool. And so everyone comes outside, and, and we're about to get in the car and, and go. And uh, my uncle, he walks in front of the minivan, and it's just like double takes on the front hood, and it's like, and he starts freaking out. And my uncle, he's a pretty mellow dude. He does not freak out much. And he's like, what the heck is this? And so everyone's like, what happened? We all gather around the car, and uh, everyone's like, whoa, uh, who did this? What happened? Did, like, Danny, you were outside. You, what happened? And I was like, and I am just like in full panic mode as a six-year-old. And I, uh, uh, yeah, yeah, uh, some, some guy came by, and, and uh, he carved it, that into the front of the hood. And, um, and everyone's like, really? What do you look like? And now I'm just lying through my teeth. And I say, uh, there's some medium height guy, uh, walked that way down the road. Oh yeah, and he was wearing a Cleveland Indians hat. Stupid. We're in Maine. No one's a Cleveland Indians fan except for Alitovich. So, so, they, so they're like, alright, alright. So they believe me. I'm like, yes. So they take off down the road in the way that I pointed them to. And they start driving. And I am like, oh god, I hope they find that guy. That guy doesn't exist. I'm, Hoping they find some guy and they put the blame on him. And so they don't. They come back and uh, they're like, huh, that's so weird. And my dad just starts going all Sherlock Holmes on me. And he's like, yeah, that looks familiar. So he goes, hey, Danny, come here. Uh, I want you to write your name on this piece of paper, right? And so he has me write my name and it was an identical match. I'm caught red-handed. And uh, yeah, I was punished severely. And I remember that story so well because the punishment was so significant. So significant. I was grounded for a month. A month as a six-year-old. And then two weeks without my bike after that. You, like that's, that's harsh punishment. That's a big deal as a six-year-old. A month? You only, hey, you get to go outside. Yeah, take the trash out and that's it. Get back inside. Oh yeah, and then after you're done, yeah, two weeks without your bike. That's harsh. That's harsh. <laughs> so when, when I heard the intensity of the punishment, I knew that the crime was a big deal. Correct? And so with here in this passage, Jesus is showing us that lovelessness, the warning, is that 
if you don't repent, I'll remove your lampstand. That's a big crime. Lovelessness is a big, big, big deal to Jesus. You see that? Huge deal. Lovelessness is a big deal. So much that we need to repent. Uh, And this is where we need the Gospel. Uh, We need to repent. We need the Gospel. In order for us to repent, we need to see our need for a Savior in the sin of lovelessness. We are in desperate need of the Gospel in this area of our lives. We need to see that our knowledge without grace can actually strangle love that we have for God and for each other. And listen, I do this. Like just two weeks ago, I did this. Like I went to another church in Connecticut and I'm sitting there, wanted to, you know, check out another church just to get a good viewpoint of Christianity. And I'm listening to this guy. That's wrong. That's wrong. That's wrong. This guy, like, he doesn't know any. Who is this guy? Like, there's no grace. It's just critical, 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 loveless. That's sin. And Jesus is calling us to repent of that. He says, repent. Turn from that way of living. Has our knowledge blinded us to the truth of sanctification? Like, think about your theology 10, 15 years ago. And how bad it was. Right? Just how how off it was. And how, wow, 10 years later, yeah, I've learned so much. And then think 10 years, 15, 20 years ahead. Like, how much more you'll know. How much more Christ will take you along. This is the process of sanctification that Jesus is bringing us along. Is that we don't know everything. And none of us have arrived. And we don't. Like, this is the already but not yet. We are saved and we are being saved. We are sanctified and we are being sanctified. Christ is constantly teaching us. And He's been so gracious with us. Has He not? Like, there's some things I believed when I was 20. The prayer of Jabez had me sold the moment I read it. Oh, how gracious God has been with us. To, to take us by the hand and say, you know, that's not really right, but that's alright. Let's, hey, let me, let me show you what it is. And He graciously and lovingly teaches us and grows us into His image. And it's not that we don't, we don't correct false teaching, right? Jesus, Jesus commends that. We do correct false teaching. We do. Like, if I say something up here that's stupid, like, please, help me. <laughs> we correct false teaching. We want right doctrine. We want good orthodoxy. But we can't be loveless. And so, we are told here to remember from where we have fallen. Remember the love you had at first. That's one of the commands. Repent from lovelessness. Repent Change the way you're living. Confess. Change your mind. Change the way you handle doctrines. Do not be indoctrinated and loveless. Rather, in all our work, in all our toil, in all our patient endurance, in our study, in our Bible reading, in our thinking hard, in our knowledge, in our hatred for evil, Let gospel-centered love fuel all of it. All of it. So in a 2 Corinthians 5 kind of way, let the love of Christ compel us. Then there's one more point here in verse 7. 
He gives them a reward, a future promise for those who conquer. Verse 7 says, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Jesus is saying that there is a type of love that I will give you. There's a type of love that you can be living in right now. And if you live in that love that we have, if you live with a love for the body, for other Christians, you've conquered this. And I'm going to empower you by my spirit to do this. Like There's a tree of life that was forbidden in Genesis chapter 2 through 3. And now it can be delighted in in Revelation 22. The reason the eating from the tree of life is the reward is because of what it resembles. We get to live forever with God and where it is located in the presence of God. And this promise echoed from Genesis 2 was lost originally by Adam and Eve in the garden. But now it's regained in Jesus. Fully regained. And we get to eat of that tree if we learn to love in all of our doing. Let's pray. God, it's so, it's so strange that um, even sometimes like, we have to ask you to help us love you. It's just kind of strange from our human viewpoint. But... Um, Lord, it's so true. We need you to help us love you. It's how delusioned we are. It's how fallen we are. So God, make us a church um, like, like Ephesus in the way that we do have good theology and good orthodoxy. God, also, would you stir in us a love and affection for your son, Jesus? Lord, we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.